Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I'm Larry Mishkin of Mishkin Law in Chicago, joined by my co-hosts today, Jim Marty and Longmont and Rob Hunt out in uh, Southern California. Jim, how are you doing? Very good. I'm actually in our Denver office this afternoon and uh, enjoying some fine fall weather. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. And Rob, everything going well in Southern California? Everything's great. Crazy, crazy busy with all sorts of cannabis projects, but, uh, but couldn't be happier. Wonderful. Always good to hear. Well, we got a fun show today. We're going to get a uh, wrap-up from Jim Marty, who was at MJ Biz, and he's going to let us know what went down there and how the industry's going and which were the parties worth attending and the ones worth not attending, which is usually half the news out of MJ Biz anyway. Rob uh, was lucky enough to catch fish at Shula Vista over the weekend, and he's got a first-hand review on that for us. And then uh, we're going to do some talking about the Grateful Dead and Halloween and uh, some fun shows they've played over the years. We've got some great musical clips. And if time permits, at the end, a, uh, at least an initial review of the new box set, Listen to the River, uh, the uh, St. Louis shows from 71, 72, and 73. So good show today. Uh, looking forward to it and uh, hope you will join us for the whole thing. But let's uh, start with Jim. Uh, when we talked last week, Jim, you were actually at MJ Biz, and uh, we were getting a, a live report from the floor with the uh, marijuana historian from uh, from uh, the Las Vegas area. Uh, overall, how was the uh, weekend? How or the uh, the show? Excuse me. How did it go? Uh, were the numbers, you know, what they had anticipated, and uh, what's the overall mood of what's going on in the industry? Yeah, you know, my takeaway was it was very successful. Uh, that was a great uh, interview we had. That was Stephanie Till, who does some uh, blog writing for our company out there in Las Vegas. I would say, um, I believe the numbers I heard were 30,000 attendees, 1,100 exhibitors, which might be down a little bit from prior years, but post-COVID, pretty good numbers. The uh, venue was fairly strict about uh, face masks. Uh, you please pull your face mask up over your nose as people were walking by. Um, but uh, I guess another takeaway was a lot of big industry manufacturing companies were there who are not necessarily in the cannabis business, but see a, uh, an avenue to expand their business into cannabis. For instance, a tree company from Alabama was next to us selling their planters for clones. On the other side of us was a uh, food company that dehydrates food, looking into getting into the edibles industry. Um, so a lot of big companies coming in, uh, trying to find their place. Uh, but our booth was super busy. It was a steady stream of clients and associates and people who sought us out because we're a, a CPA firm. As I was telling my staff, uh, not everybody needs a $500,000 extraction machine, but they all need a good accounting firm. So uh, for, our, for our point of view, it was very good. As far as the parties go, that did get a little disjointed. There was a parallel conference called MJ Unpacked, and it kind of screwed things up in some ways because it was a 30-minute cab right away from the convention center at uh, the um, Melo Largo um, excuse me, Mandalay Bay. And they had a private party with the Blues Brothers, Jim Belushi and Dan Aykroyd. And you couldn't go, you couldn't go unless you were attending MJ Unpacked, which I actually tried to register for, and I didn't qualify. Uh, it was only for qualified investors and cannabis companies seeking to expand their brand. So they made it very exclusive. There was a big after party, which, again, I wasn't invited to. So it did kind of cross things up a little bit. And I also heard their attendance was, was very poor at MJ Unpacked. But I don't really know because I didn't go. 
So um, everything um, else went very smooth. And then my wife and I had a beautiful 15-hour drive home through Arizona and Utah and Colorado with all the beautiful fall colors. So uh, that's one of my favorite drives is uh, Denver to Las Vegas. I'd do it anytime. So you were ahead of that, uh, that big bomb cyclone that was dumping snow all over the place. Yes, we got into town a few days before that. So we just had beautiful weather, luckily. Excellent, excellent. excellent. Well, I, I, I missed MJ Biz this year, and I, it, it's an event I typically really like going to. Um, it was one of those things where it didn't seem like there was a big buzz beforehand. But once it started, I was getting texts from everybody Something to look forward to for future years. Yes, Jim. One last thing. Uh, yeah, Jim Belushi was walking the floor without a mask, I might add. Uh, so I gave him a shout out as he walked by our booth. Very nice. Did he chat with you for a minute? No, no. He was he was tearing down the hall. And he had a big entourage trying to keep up with him. Very good. Rob, what about you? Well, <clears throat> pleased that I don't have to go to those convention floors anymore. And <laughs> hopefully never set foot on another one again. Uh, I think that these days, most of the business, as you know, in Vegas gets done at the... Um, in the hotel rooms, you know, or at different dinners or different events away from the other convention floor. And I feel the convention floor oftentimes is just a great place for people to see anything that's new that's happening or for the uninitiated to really get a sense of, you know, how big the canvas industry is. But very few people I know, you know, really go to the, uh, the floor at all anymore. And I think a lot of people prefer, you know, some of the smaller conventions than the Vegas one. But, um, you know, nice to know that the gym was there and nice to know that the thing 30,000 attendees were on that floor but I think, you know, as usual, far more people were probably in Vegas than, than actually were registered for the event. You know, but I, I agree, but I think it's just, it's it's great, you know, to have that one event every year where, you know, you think if, if there's people who are just going to go to one event a year, this is the one they're likely to show up at. Um, you know, under normal circumstances, you know, Las Vegas is just as fun as can be. And it sounds like, uh, for me, having spoken to the folks who were there, uh, that they all still managed to have a pretty good time anyway. So, uh um, you know, if uh, if they have it and the people show up, good for them. But uh, it is kind of a changing uh, an industry, especially, you know, for those of us who have been to a few of those and, you know, had a chance to kind of soak it all up. Um, yeah, my feeling was that, you know, Vegas is back. The uh, gaming tables were very full. Uh, you did have to wear a mask unless you were drinking or smoking a cigarette. So Vegas is still the last refuge of the cigarette smoker. <laughs> Which means you didn't have to wear a mask. <laughs> you know, like, who isn't drinking or smoking a cigarette in a Vegas casino? <laughs> I was just going to say, see, what that when you must have these guys with permanent cigarettes going must be great for the cigarette girls, right? They're making a killing. Yep. It's the way to beat the mask mandate is just become a chain smoker. It works out for That's everyone. Right. Well, good. Thank you for that update, Jim. It's great to hear uh, that things are going strong in the industry, and, and the Las Vegas convention is always a bellwether of that, so... Uh, if they're chugging along, then that's good news for the rest of us, and uh, and we'll see what happens uh, as we go forward. Not a whole lot more going on in the marijuana world on my end, guys. Uh, you know, things in Chicago are in the same unfortunate status quo that they've always been in, where we know that people have been awarded licenses, but there's pending litigation, and who knows what's happening or what schedule it's on. And some people are trying to move forward, which is very admirable, and a lot of people have just kind of thrown up their hands not wanting to put the money in until they get some indication from the state that things are actually going forward. Um, but it's all a matter of perspective. Uh, a, a good buddy of mine uh, from St. Louis, my buddy Mark, was up this weekend to celebrate my birthday and actually was the guy who gifted me the uh, uh, the dead box. And um, Missouri just is getting their medical really rolling and it's still kind of hard to get your medical cards and all of that. So, of course, he comes up here and we went into a couple of the adult use 
And he was very, very you know, impressed to see how wonderful it is. And boy, you guys can get it. And I was pointing out the high price. He's like, no, you guys can buy it. This is great. And, you know, it's true. You can, you know. So I guess price is all a matter of perspective. If you can't buy it at all, $80 for an eighth doesn't seem so terrible. If you live in Colorado or California, you know, the thought of $80 for an eighth probably is enough to make you choke on your Cheerios. So, you know, it's just a matter of, uh, of, of how that all plays out. So we'll see. Can't, can't get it in the store, I think, is what, what you mean to say. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's true. Jim? Well, as I drove through Nevada, uh, you can get a very nice eighth for $38 in Nevada. It's good to know. Next time I'm out there, which I hope will be sooner than later. So cool. Okay, well, the business side of the world, then, is the business side of the world. And let's jump over to the fun side of the world, which is uh, Fish, The Grateful Dead, live music in general. Um, I'm, uh, you know, just finally getting back, uh, getting my feet back on the ground after the amazing quintet run. I know that uh, the Dead just finished up their run at uh, at Red Rocks, but we also have Fish back in high gear, and uh, they are pretty much dominating the West Coast this time around. Uh, and for Rob, uh, I know that's been very convenient as an an old fish hand who loves to talk nerdy Grateful Dead statistics, but at the end of the day, probably loves a good trade jam as much as anybody. Uh, you were at the Shula Vista show. What do you got to tell us about it? Well, I'll tell you that it was my wife's first show, so that was a big deal. I've been trying to get her to come see a show with me for a while and uh, convinced her to, uh, to go to Chula Vista to the North Island Credit Union Amphitheater the other night. Um, begrudgingly, I should say, but, uh, but she went, and you know, I appreciate the, uh, the, the effort she made. And I got to tell you that for her first show, you know, it, while it might not be her um, you know, sort of uh, style of music she enjoys, it will be a memorable show to anyone that was a, a Fish fan, simply because you know, anytime the anytime the band does stuff that uh, is sort of easy to catalog, like, oh yeah, I, I remember that show. Well, in this one specifically, you know, a lot of people remember the Tweezer Fest they did a few years ago, where you know they just peppered Tweezer into you know every other jam. But on this one, because it was the North Island Credit Union, which is the acronym NICU, and there's a Fish song called NICU, they would uh, tease NICU throughout the entire show. So I think throughout the night, they teased um, NICU on Tube, on Rise and Come Together, on Free, on Sense and Subtle Sounds. So they just kept, you know, sort of plugging in. Sometimes they do it multiple times during the, uh, the song. And I kept looking at my wife going, you know, this is really strange. I've never seen Fish, you know, tease NICU. It's not a song that you'd think they'd be, they'd be teasing. And I never put it together during the show. It wasn't until the next day that they, you know, I was looking through a review. And I was like, oh, of course, you know, that was because of the... Uh, and then during the encore, you know, uh, Trey had, in between the first encore and the second one, you know, Trey was like, all right, so, you know, on bass, Mike Gordon, I see you. And on drums, John Fishman, I see you. You know, and then he's like, to the audience, and I see all of you. You know, and sort of, sort of that moment that they revealed what the joke was. Um, but it was great. You know, it's, uh, they, they did a couple other memorable things. They played, you know, one of the few times they've ever played a slow llama. Um, they also did a fluff head that was an unfinished fluff head with a type 2 jam in it. Um, they, uh, <clears throat> they played a super, super dark Piper with just, you know, kind of like scary, dark, you know, metallic noises, uh, towards the end that I would categorize as pretty much the straight chaos, but, you know, then brought it back together, ironically, with sense and subtle sounds afterwards to go to a, a nice melodic sound, um, played a, a really nice tube, a really nice first tube as a, an encore. So all in all, I mean, for someone that does love fish, it was, it was a lot of fun, uh, a, a relatively small venue and it was definitely very uncrowded. And I can tell you that, you know, if, if the cost of cannabis in California is any reflection by the amount that was consumed at that show, weed's got to be cheap these days in Cali because it was a veritable wave. I, I was down in the pit, so I was, you know, fifth row of the place. The whole pit was just like 
soaked, just saturated with weed smoke. Um, so it was, uh, you know, certainly a reflection on how healthy the cannabis industry is in the state of California. Wonderful. And, and, and so overall, Trey and the boys sounded pretty solid? Yeah, they sounded great. You know, it's, uh, I would say the first set was relatively uninspired, but then when you got to the Free and the Piper in the second set, you know, it was pretty rock, and the first tube was straight fire. The sand they played, uh, actually it was, it was Free into Sand into, um, into Piper. Uh, and the sand was fantastic as well. Probably wasn't as good as the one I saw Trey Band play a few weeks ago in, in Mass. But, you know, fully different. You know, obviously no horn section. But, yeah, they sounded great. It's it always fun to see those guys play music. Well, <clears throat> Piper is definitely one of my favorite fish songs. So glad to hear that it's back in the rotation. But it is interesting that comment Rob made about uh, how different fish is on the West Coast from the East Coast. On the East Coast, they sell out multiple nights at Madison Square Garden. Uh, and on the West Coast, in California, L.A., San Diego, they're playing, as Rob said, relatively small, uncrowded sheds. I don't know if that's, you know, it, that I used to always remember that as, with the dead as well. It always seemed like going to a dead show on the West Coast was a much gentler experience than going to a dead show in the Garden or the Spectrum or Brendan Byrne or one of those places where, you know, if you didn't watch yourself, you could get moved all over the place. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's absolutely, absolutely true. I mean, I don't think that the dead ever did a... Um, a West Coast summer tour where they sold out stadiums. They sold out Cal Expo, which is, you know, 8,000 people. And, you know, Shoreline was like the biggest venue they played in the West Coast. Once in a while you'd get, you know, I saw them play the LA Coliseum one time, but the place was absolutely empty. And that was just a, a one-off night. So I don't think I ever saw a stadium show the way I would at like Foxborough or Buffalo or Giants Stadium or, you know, any like JFK, RFK. That stuff just didn't exist on the West Coast, even for the Grateful Dead. And for Fish, I mean, you look at where they're playing tonight in Santa Barbara, and then that venue is maybe like, Five or six, you know, maybe a little more than that. Like, but no more than fifteen thousand people in Santa Barbara. That's that's a tiny venue for those guys as an outdoor venue. Very nice. And Santa Barbara is a great place, so you know, I'm sure that'll be nice as well. A uh, good night of fish right by the ocean, and uh, everybody will have a good time. So and, and, fantastic. And, and unfortunately, I, I'm missing Dead and Company's tonight at Chula Vista. So you know, for those that are actually, it was a, a, well, we're Tonight on the day we're um, we're taping, not tonight on the day that we're airing, but uh, but there's a couple of dead and company shows that are happening uh, over the next couple of nights here in Southern California that hopefully I'll get a chance to see at least one in um, at the Hollywood Bowl. So if I do, we'll talk about that one next week. Excellent, Jim. Yes, next week uh, we can also chime into some of the reviews I've heard from our sons on the uh, Red Rocks and Fiddler's Green shows in the in the Denver area as well. Not to mention the four night run of Fish to finish their fall tour in Las Vegas, finishing on Halloween. Right. I was just about to say my son uh, and his crew uh, are all they're they're going to have thirty five forty people out there. Uh, they're all excited to go. My son's never been to Las Vegas before, so Vegas and fish, I guess, is a great way to break yourself in out there. Um, so quick shout-out to them. I hope they have a good time. I'm sure they will. But there'll be lots of uh, lots of good reviews coming back. And, you know, that's, we're, we're at that point now, Jim, where, um, you know, the kids are old enough that they can go out and do the, the, uh, the dirty work for us. Well, I, I wish I was there. I'm just... It's chomping at the bit to jump on a plane and head to Vegas, but I have some professional duties that I have to take care of here at my practice this week. No, I understand. Me too. I was trying to suggest to my wife that maybe we should just jump out there. and She reminded me that that's the province of the younger people and that, you know, we're just destined to hang out and hear about it. But that, I shouldn't say that about it. That's not really true. This time it was, but we've been doing a lot of uh, traveling for shows, so... I'm not one to complain, uh, although it would be great to, to be able to see one of those fun shows. When it comes to Halloween, you know, I think we can uh, we can tell our kids a lot of fun stories, because obviously when it comes to the Grateful Dead world, there have been no shortage of, uh, of great Halloween shows over the years. I think the Grateful Dead, 
you know, played Halloween 13 uh, times. You know, Fish obviously does their thing every year on Halloween where they, they play someone else's album. But, you know, the Grateful Dead tradition of, of Halloween was a great one, starting off in 66. I think they played five uh, years in a row before they started taking some time off. And then Garcia Band played, I think, nine Halloweens. So if you think about sort of the canon of, of Grateful Dead music that we can tell our kids about, unfortunately, I don't think any of the three of us ever saw a Grateful Dead show on Halloween, but I think we're all familiar with quite a few of them, just how many great ones there were. True. I uh, was never uh, positioned uh, to catch a show on Halloween, uh, but used to hear stories about it from my buddies uh, on the East Coast and West Coast, which is where those shows would uh, would typically be played, at least during the period of time when I was uh, following the band. No, I as well never got to a Halloween show, but I've, I've listened to plenty, and I think we're going to do a little bit of that this afternoon. A little bit of a deep dive. Rob, what do you think? What do you got set up for us? Oh, yeah, a couple of things I think we should... Uh, we should you know, jam out on a bit. The The last time the Grateful Dead played Halloween before they took about a seven-year break was in 1971 from Ohio, and that was a, a pretty hot show, and then they took, you know, the next time they played Halloween was in, in 1978, and obviously Garcia Band did a handful of, of ones in between, so I think we'll listen to a little bit of that Ohio show, and then uh, after Warren Zevon wrote the, uh, the, the song Werewolves of London, it became a staple of both the Garcia Band and of the Grateful Dead to play as an encore on Halloween night, and that became something that you know, probably the only chance you got to listen to a Werewolves of London by, you know, that Garcia would play was at either a Garcia band show or a Grateful Dead show, and they didn't play it the rest of the year. So that was always something that fans would look forward to, going, okay, well, at least I know they're going to play Werewolves, sort of like knowing that, you know, they're going to play a Saturday night on a Saturday night or a Samson on a Sunday. Um, yeah, so, uh, so I think we'll listen to probably what I think is the most interesting Werewolves to end the show, which is from the Lundfontein Theater when Jerry did that run on Broadway. And, uh, you know, a great album came out of that. Of, uh, I think it was Pure Jerry number 2. So a couple of fun things, and then I think we can also talk about some other great Grateful Dead moments. Uh, specifically, the one that sticks out to me is ten thirty one ninety one, soon after Bill Graham passed away, uh, when um, uh, uh, Ken Kesey came out to speak about Bill Graham, and uh, I think um, uh, what's his name Duncan also from Quicksilver Silver Messenger Servants also uh, came out and played to them for a little bit during Spoonful and then through the Dark Star. So, you know, very cool stuff that, uh, that happens on um, the magical Halloween nights that we get from the Grateful Dead. But, hey, Dan, perhaps you want to start it off. Maybe we'll queue up the, uh, the St. Stephen from 1031-71 uh, from the Ohio Theater. Yeah, that's a good one. You know, and, I, and what I love about that time period is it's still, the, the music is still kind of played with that really heavy late 60s influence. And on the vocals, you can hear them, I think, trying to coalesce a little bit more into the harmonies and everything that would ultimately become the, the, the kind of 1970s version of St. Stephen. Um, but on that night, boy, you know, you can hear Jerry and all of them, they're, they're, just, they're just popping on there. It sounds great. Well, I think the fun thing to think about then, too, is that some of those 71 shows, just how high energy they were from, you know, whole, like, 30, 40-minute periods of time. And on that night, they came out of uh, a Dark Star, you know, pretty long, slow, mellow Dark Star, and then just lit it up with a Sugar Mag, St. Stephen, Not Fade Away, Going Down the Road, Not Fade Away, Johnny Be Good, which is, like, you know, straight fire for, for 35 minutes. 
Uh, and that's something that I think in the later years you never had, you know, that much energy with that many songs in a row. There'd always be a ballad thrown in there, or there'd always be like you know some sort of slow tune thrown in there. That was you know kind of um, just end of like the primal dead years of going into you know sort of their their pre Americana you know sort of folk period of just like how hard can we push it for uh, for thirty or forty minutes of just high energy playing. Yeah, I agree. But that's a great clip and a great choice. Uh, and, you know, look, you like to think that it's Halloween. Maybe there's a little extra something motivating them that night, whatever it might be, uh, to really kind of inspire them to those great heights. But at the end, we'll have a chance also to listen to Jerry doing it um, uh, from uh, the when, one of his solo performances uh, on Broadway a few years back. Uh, and it's different it's it's more fun and it's more playful but uh you know either way it's it's just the grateful dead and jerry having a good time on uh halloween which is always a fun night for everyone you know i guess it's not quite the same as going to the fish show where they've really kind of uh turned it into a, a this major event with the idea of a musical costume and uh all the other fun stuff that goes along with it um but you know uh, for what they were doing at the time, I think that the dead knew how to take uh, a celebration like Halloween and put their own stamp on it. And how lucky are we to have both Fish and Dead and Company crisscrossing the country, crisscrossing each other's paths, jumping into venues that the other band played the night before? I mean, this is fun or what? It's great. And again, don't forget, Phil's doing a Halloween show, too. So, um, you know, we're, we're going to have tremendous live music all over the place this weekend, Rob. Yeah, I mean, look, I've seen a bunch of bands you know, besides the ones we're talking about on Halloween, but you know, Widespread Panic puts on as good a, uh, a Halloween celebration as anyone. So if you, I think you guys went to Vegas a couple of years, and if you did, then they played the Thomas and Mack Center one year, and they played MGM Grand the next year, and both those shows were you know, absolutely insane fun Halloween shows. Yes, I think Widespread Panic is playing New Orleans this weekend. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, so And then obviously like, there's always the Sewanee sort of uh, Halloween fest that uh, the String Cheese used to do. So Halloween isn't just, you know, a big night, I think, for, for the dead or for fish, but it's a big night, I think, for most bands, especially the ones that have kind of that festive um, feeling to them. So, you know, most years you expect a, a pretty big night out of a band on Halloween, which, again, is kind of going back to that Grateful Dead 91 thing. Um, kind of interesting that it wasn't, you know, simply because, you know, Bill Graham had passed away a couple days before that in a helicopter accident just before the dead were supposed to play four nights at uh, Oakland Coliseum. So they ended up playing the four nights and they ended up doing a benefit show for them in, uh, in uh, Golden Gate Park uh, a couple days later. So it was five nights of music, but the, the feeling was really, really somber uh, going into those. So, you know, if we've ever, if anyone's listened to the, uh, the tapes of that, the, um, the dark star that, that happens on, on 1031 with Gary Duncan and with Ken Kesey, Kesey comes out and just like delivers one of the most powerful speeches I've ever heard happening in the middle of a show. And, um, and then reads E.E. E. Cummings' poem, um, Buffalo Bill, which ends with the line, how do you like your blue-eyed boy now, Mr. Death? And does it while Phil is just laying down some of the heaviest bass bombs of all time. And I think there's a great like moment of catharsis there of Bill Graham, dis- or Ken Kesey discussing what an impact Bill Graham had on not just him, but on the Grateful Dead and on the music community in general. That was kind of like a collective release for everyone to say, okay, now let's get back to the the business of having fun in music again. And all our fans can uh, find that on archive.org, right, Rob? Yeah, I mean, if it's not already in your, uh, you know, your tape collection or already in your, um, you know, uh, MP3 collection, uh, you know, wherever you're collecting music these days, it's certainly very easy to find on uh, Archive, and I'd highly recommend 
Um, that's of all the dark stars out there in the early '90s. If you were to say which one sticks out in my mind as just being the one that's like um, absolutely must listen to, that 1031 is it is heavy, it is dark, it is crazy, and um, and then you know the rest of the show is is super fun. It's a great Scarlet Fire. It's a great Helpslip Franklin's, but uh, but that 1031 is um, that 103191 is definitely one to uh, to check out. Okay, and that is something that. Uh... We will tell everyone to do, and we'll see what comes down this year. And uh, by the time we all talk next week, guys, it'll be post-Halloween, and, and we'll have the word in on all these various groups and what they did. And, uh, you know, perhaps there'll be some more history made and uh, stuff for our kids to talk about 30 years from now, if they're lucky enough. But good. Great reports and great updates on all of that. Any guesses, Rob, on uh, what Fish might do for a musical costume this year? I have no idea. I mean, every time I think I know what they're doing, I get it wrong. And I'll tell you, like, the one time I was really pleased they got it wrong was when everyone thought they were going to play Dark Side of the Moon in Vegas, and then they saved it and played it in Salt Lake City a couple days later, where I missed the Halloween show, but I got the Salt Lake City show. So the fact that they didn't play it, you know, when when everyone thought they would, um, you know, delivered for me one of the most memorable fish nights I've ever seen. Um, But they've gotten so many of the good ones. They've gotten Exile on Main Street. They've gotten Loaded. They've gotten, you know, you name some of the great albums of all time. Uh, but I don't know, any guesses from you, Jim? Well, not guesses, but uh, I remember that Dark Side uh, after Halloween because they came and played Denver either the next night or the night after that. So uh, I mentioned that Denver Fish Show, and everyone was talking about the Dark Side of the Moon they had seen the night before in Salt Lake City. But guesses for tonight? No, I, I'm drawing a blank. You never know what they're going to do for Halloween. Well, my buddy, my son's buddies in their group are kicking around all sorts of options. Apparently, the Rocky Horror Picture Show uh, was being discussed as a possibility out there for a little while, which, uh, you know, I thought might be interesting. Uh, I helpfully suggested that given its 50th anniversary of its release, Skull and Roses might be a great album. Uh, but there seems to be a real pushback on Trey wanting to, to play very much Grateful Dead. So uh, that one wasn't given a lot of uh a lot of hope either so you know look i guess that's what makes it fun that's why everybody comes from all over because you know it's going to be something great no matter what they do and um you know like i say by this time next week we'll know it and you know we'll all be able to talk about it and uh, and have some fun yes jim didn't they do the talking heads remain in light one year they did they did remain in light I, that's a that's a great show that's another one that our uh, listeners should look up and listen to all of them. The Remain in Light is one of my favorite albums. Loaded is one of my favorite albums. Quadrophenia is one of my favorite albums. And that's the great thing about these is they actually give songs that they sometimes keep in the repertoire. I mean, like the fact we have Sweet Jane for years after that and Rock and Roll. You know, those are two amazing songs that came off of Loaded. They learned it for, you know, one specific purpose and kept it in there. But I think, you know, Sweet Jane is one of my favorite things to hear those guys play. Well, moving right along, we cannot lose sight of the fact that uh, the Grateful Dead have developed this kind of process now where once a year they release a box set i think it just makes it easy for everyone right we don't have to spend lots of money all year you kind of know when it's going to hit you have a chance to check it out and we've talked about the fact already that uh uh this year's box set is uh, listen to the rivers the uh the shows from st louis and the fox theater and the keel opera house in 71 72 and 73 and i just received my copy this weekend Again, from my good buddy Mark in St. Louis, who bought it for me for my birthday and brought it up. And uh, we listened to the first night, which is um, 12.971, and it's just absolutely fantastic. Um, the music is great. The song selection is amazing. Um, on the one hand, I'm you know, incredibly proud of the fact that they would you know, come to my home city and play shows like that. 
On the other hand, I'm incredibly frustrated that I was nine and a half at the time and going to the show wasn't really much of an option for me. So uh, listening to it now is, is really the next best thing. Um, but um, I don't know if either one of you guys have ordered it or heard anything about it, but I know David Lemieux's been talking about it nonstop. And um, I'm really, really excited to listen to the rest of the shows. Well, it's certainly going to go on my uh, Christmas list. I have not had a chance to see it. But the um, Fox Theater in St. Louis, I've never been there. And Larry, have you? I have. Um, I was supposed to see The Grateful Dead there in 1986. Uh, They had announced a show at the Fox Theater two nights. Uh, We ordered in for our tickets, got them. I had second row center. I can prove them because I saved the tickets. And Jerry had slipped into his diabetic coma three weeks before. So the shows were all canceled and and never rescheduled. Uh, However, in 29 or 10, I want to say, I saw Fish there. Uh, Fish on their tour announced a show uh, at the Fox Theater in St. Louis. And uh, my cousin Brent, who lives in St. Louis, was money and got us tickets. And a whole group of us went down to see that. He got us those nice little kind of like box seats on the side. And um, it was just a tremendous, tremendous show. And uh, the old theater, was you could feel it shaking and swaying. And uh, it was obviously a great place to see live music. Uh, sorry, I didn't get to see the dead there, uh, but very happy that I got to see fish there. Because I've heard things about the Fox Theater that's very beautiful with lots of gold paint. Oh, it's very ornate. It's a, it's a, it's a lovely old theater that by the time the dead started playing there, you know, the, the neighborhood had already kind of slipped a little bit and it wasn't. Uh, what it was back in its heyday, probably in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, uh, when it was, you know, the real entertainment palace in St. Louis, uh, you know, and, and the dead and other groups were allowed to play there because I don't think the city really cared all that much, you know, if, if it was them playing. Well, the story I heard about when the dead started playing there is beautiful old theater with all this articulate gold-painted columns, and the dead were, like, taking de- duct tape and taping their speaker wires to this gold paint, and when it came off, all the gold paint would come off, and the, the people who worked the theater were just freaking out. <laughs> their beautiful gold paint was getting all banged up by the Grateful Dead's duct tape. Yeah, well, you know, the boys and the and the crew did what they had to do. Um, but yeah, it, it, the other thing I love is that there's a, a, all the stuff that comes with these box sets, and there's a great book with a, a number of different stories in there about the Dead's relationship with St. Louis and and what you know some of the behind the, st- the scenes stories that we in St. Louis had all heard rumored for years and years, but never really you know knew for certain one way or the other. In fact, uh, one of the classic stories that's been going around was that, in, I forgot if it was 71 or 72, that year a, a young man named, I believe his name was Richie Gerber, who went to the same junior high school that I would attend a few years later, uh, was having his bar mitzvah party at the uh, airport Marriott, which is where the Grateful Dead would stay whenever they would come to St. Louis to play at the Fox Theater. And uh, the story that I heard from an old buddy of mine who said he was there was that uh, all these young, you know, 13 and 14 year old uh, Jewish kids were in there that they had one of the local high school bands playing. They were on a break and the dad were either, I don't know if they were on their way out to their show or back from their show or whatever it was, but they had all had a few drinks and a few of them kind of stumbled into the room and they were invited, uh, asked if they would like to play. They said, sure. They stepped up and they took the instruments from the high school band and played a couple of songs. And when my friend told me this story, I you never really knew if this is legit or if it's just kind of urban legend or, you know, somebody's pulling your leg. Now David Lemieux talks about it. So I figure, you know, there must be some credence to it. And somebody dug out an old article from the St. Louis paper that, that was 
printed at the time talking about it. So now I'm trying to track down my buddy to see if I can get him to come on the show and give us a first-hand account of what may have been the, uh, uh, you know, the craziest or certainly smallest uh, performance by the Grateful Dead since uh, they were playing at Magoo's Pizza or something in the uh, uh, early 60s as the Jug Band. So, uh, but, you know, this is just, you know, these are great stories and, and part of Grateful Dead lore in St. Louis. And so, you know, to finally get the music that, that you know, really kind of shaped the whole scene um, is just fantastic. They sound great, uh, fantastic song selections, fun tunes like Run, Rudolph, Run, and Sitting on Top of the World. But, but it's, 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 it's a must for uh, anyone who likes that period of time. Rob? Yeah, I think it's a great segue also to the other um, surprise release we got this week, Larry, which is uh, another Palo Alto. You mentioned Magoo's, but uh, Sophie's in Palo Alto was... We're on November 8th, 1976, I believe, um, the Garcia Band played there, and suddenly out of nowhere, we get this new recording that was a lost recording that Donna Jean Godshaw just happened to find uh, in one of her um, vaults of some sort, and now has released it out there, which on November 8th drops on us as well, so we not only get this big box set from the Grateful Dead, but we get a, uh, another uh, Garcia Band uh, recording as well that no one's ever heard before, which is super cool. Well, it is super cool, and of course, you know, the, the, the funny part of that story is that it was Donna Jean, or her son, uh, who discovered the houseboat tapes uh, from the houseboat that uh, Keith lived on, and when Keith joined the band, uh, Jerry gave him a box of tapes from their prior tour and said, here's our music, go learn it. Keith listened to it or not, who knows, it was all real to real. He left it on the houseboat, and 30 years later, when they were selling the houseboat, either Donna Jean's son or Keith's son or their son was cart- carting boxes off, and they found this box of tapes. They called the houseboat tapes. I think it's Dick's Picks 33 or 34, right at the end of the Dick's Picks series. And now here we have Donna Jean once again, uh, you know, finding a uh, a lost relic of Grateful Dead music. So it makes you wonder, you know, either she's, uh, you know, incredibly uh, well-positioned or, you know, she sure knows how to make a buck. She she swears she's not hoarding them. She promises, like, these are actually legitimate random finds, and, and she was actually really surprised on this one that the tape quality was still good enough to be usable and be able to, uh, to put out as a release. So the first thing she did was call Mountain Girl when she found it and said, you know, hey, check this out, look what I found. And immediately, you know, the, the Garcia family said, yeah, let's put this thing out. Fantastic. Well, I... That'll be another one, uh, stocking stuffer or something along the way. But uh, that's a great show too, and uh, it's fun to see those types of discoveries. Um, you know, and it because not only is it fun to get them, but it, of course it just keeps the imagination going at what else could still be out there that hasn't been discovered yet. You know, who happened to tape a show at uh, at this kid's bar mitzvah and left it in his reel to reel or his uh, his pocket cassette, and you know, 20 years from now his kids will find it when they clean out his attic or something. So. You know, we'll keep our fingers crossed and hope for the best, but that's the magic of the Grateful Dead that uh, anytime, anywhere, uh, something can show up that's uh, that's really, really cool. So well, I think we're all waiting. We're all waiting for that. That's the thing. Every Grateful Dead fan's waiting for that March 17th, 1970 show to drop where they uh, you know played the three songs of the Philharmonic. So that's the one that's kind of like the, the coveted, where is it? Someone's got to have a recording of it, and to date, nobody's uh, unearthed one. Well, you know, I think it was like that show we talked about previously at the Straight Theater, uh, where they were all the, you can't find the show on archive.org, and uh, there's messages everywhere. So there's still a couple out there that that we know were played, uh, and the tapes aren't accounted for, but I'm more interested in the ones that we don't know were played, and may not ever know until, you know, the tapes are uncovered, so... Um, you know, we'll just have to see what happens and hope that, uh, you know, Donna Jean uh, stumbles into a few more for us or uh, 
or uh, other folks in the family can have that luck. Exactly, or, or Betty doesn't pay her uh, her storage unit bill. Right, and then right then we get, goes on that show that my kids watch, where they all bid on the the storage units, and uh, who knows what they do with that. So yeah, so that's all good stuff too. Okay, guys, anything else? Jim, you got anything else for us? No, that that's a wrap. Uh, maybe next week we can get our sons on the show to give give us some reviews of uh, fish in Vegas. Yeah, that would be fun. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, Rob, you. Just happy Halloween to all of our listeners. Hope everyone has a great, safe time out there. And for uh, for the guys that have younger children like myself, have fun with your kids and enjoy the uh, the cruising around getting candy and costume this week. So uh, from Southern California and Linnea Holdings, uh, Rob Hunt signing off, saying happy Halloween to all. Thank you, sir. And thanks again to Dan Humiston, our wonderful producer who keeps us going along even when it looks like we're about to fall off the rails. Uh, so thank you, sir, for the uh, steady guiding hand and all of that. Um, on our way out, we're going to listen now to this Werewolves of London uh, from the Jerry Garcia Band at the Lundfontaine Theater uh, in uh, 1986, is it, Rob? 87, the Werewolves of Broadway. Yeah, he, there's a little Werewolves of Broadway mixed in. It's a great, wonderful version, uh, although I do just want to throw out there that, that Rob was right. Probably 99% of their Werewolves were played on or around Halloween. Uh, with one exception, which is a show they did in 1978 at Northern Illinois University in DeKalb in April of all the times, April 24th, and they have a Werewolves that night. It happens to be a wonderful Werewolves, just not timely played on Halloween, so it didn't make the cut tonight. It's also probably not as fun and playful as as this version that Jerry's going to give us. So uh, as we fade out, we'll uh, ask Dan to turn that on. Thank you to all. We'll talk to you next week. Enjoy your Halloween and uh, enjoy your cannabis responsibly. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Are you looking for the next great cannabis business to invest in? Then you need to check out the MJ Bulls podcast. Hi, I'm Dan Humston. Join me each week as I speak to both cannabis entrepreneurs who are raising capital and cannabis investors who are investing capital. Our 10-minute episodes are perfect for the busy investor. Start listening to the MJ Bulls podcast today, wherever you listen to podcasts, and who knows, maybe you'll discover the next cannabis unicorn.